All right, today we can continue with eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. We are continuing on element five. Uh, I think this is the 38th week of the series and the 18th week of element five. And I believe, uh, I believe we're at about the 11th week on the ministry of Jesus. Now, normally in Christology these days, you wouldn't study the ministry of Jesus, although you might study some things that could go under the ministry of Jesus, like that he had miracles, his atonement, and so forth. Uh, but um, really, uh, the ministry of Jesus is ongoing, as we covered a few weeks ago, and it continues the same as it was on the earth. You know, Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His ministry via the Holy Spirit and through his church uh, continues to be the same ministry that he's always had. And he still does the same kinds of things. He still proclaims the gospel to the poor and sets free the, you know, heals the brokenhearted and uh, sets free the afflicted and all those kinds of things. And heals, delivers, uh, all, the, all these kind of things. And that's uh, important to share when you're leading people to Christ. Uh, Jesus, you need today's ministry of Jesus to become a Christian. You need uh, to encounter Jesus. Uh, becoming a Christian is not an intellectual assent to the ideas of the Christian faith. Many people come to church and sit there every Sunday with an intellectual assent to the Christian faith and have n never met him, have never really experienced his grace, uh, have not been set free by his power and have no intention to make him their Lord because they haven't, uh, we love because he first loved us and they don't really know deeply the love of God. And they still struggle with all sorts of alienation and insecurity issues and so forth because they need to encounter the real Jesus and that they need more than a theoretical, intellectual sinner's prayer Jesus. So um, this ministry of Jesus is uh, quite important. Last week, we continued on the ministry of Jesus was by an introduction to the fact that uh, Jesus is the prophetic prosecutor of God's covenant lawsuit. So one of the things we made clear last week is that the coming of Christ to the people of Israel was in, 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 uh, is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, uh, he came bringing redemption, reconciliation, healing, miracles, atonement. On the other hand, he came bringing judgment that all those who did not receive him. And uh, again, even in today's church, there are many who go to church every week and would say, yes, I'm a Christian, uh, who have really never received him and received his ministry in their lives. So uh, this subject is huge. So uh, one of the major parts of Jesus' ministry was that he stood on the backs of all the prophets he is the law he's the fulfillment of the law and he's the prophet that Moses promised that uh, Moses said God will raise up a prophet just like me from from within the people of God and it will come to pass that everyone who hears him will live and whoever hears does not hear him or receive him will be cut off from his people and so he came to also proclaim that I'm about to cut off all the people that have continually not received my prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And uh, so uh, much of the gospel material 
that is interpreted today as being a sign of Jesus' second coming, or, or his second advent is also called, uh, is actually just about Jesus' first event, his first coming, and what he did in his life and in his ongoing calling a remnant out of God's people until he cut off and, and judged uh, the, uh, the people of Israel and made that uh, final in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which he clearly prophesies about in Matthew 24 and 25, which is called the Mount Olivet Discourse. And, but today what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us up to, uh, I'm going to take us up to uh, giving us 20 different sections of Matthew 16 through 23 to show us all the things Jesus did to bring God's covenant lawsuit in, before he pronounced in Matthew 24 the final covenant sanctions. So if you remember, one of the things we've studied in this church in the Kingdom of God series, we studied the concept of covenant because the Bible, God is bringing his covenant, his kingdom to earth through his covenant people. And he always acts covenantally faithful and covenantly loyal. And, covenant, and he's covenantally loving. And so uh, every covenant has the eight components that are listed under Roman numeral five on your page. But I, for today, we're going to focus on number seven and number eight. Every covenant has sanctions. It has a list of promises and blessings for those who submit to the covenant and obey, who consistently bring forth fruit at taking up their cross and being an obedient disciple. It all, every covenant in the Bible has a provision for successors how to pass the covenant down to the next generations, uh, which is the responsibility of all fathers to raise up their children in the faith. And it's one of the major ministries of the church is to raise up the next generation of leaders and everything else. It's why um, I always, uh, you know, evangelize and disciple, the, for the most part, people under 40 years old. I'm uh, wanting to disciple the next generation of leaders uh, because that's what I'm biblically called to do is hand the baton off before God takes me to be with him. And so, and then also in terms of succession, uh, the, the, there's always a remnant of people that come out of the last people. And as Galatians tell us, it tells us using the illustration of uh, Haggai that Abraham's made and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac, the recipients of the last moves of God are always the persecutors of the recipients of the current move of God. So much of the New Testament is actually taken up with, with the Judaizers, the Jews, and they're trying to what to they're participating with the dragon in in Revelation 12 to try to wipe out the woman, that is the church or the the the, the woman represents uh, the people of God and and uh, and her offspring represent the next generation of the people of God, and so God. God is always bringing about his next generation. And the, the pharaohs of this world, uh, i.e. Uh, Pharaoh trying to kill Moses, Herod trying to kill Jesus, the abortion issue today, many, they, the, the enemy is always trying, trying to take out the next generation of the people of God. Uh, that's the spiritual warfare. You don't just face individual temptation. You, you 
faced the temptations to keep from growing up and developing the character, the knowledge, the wisdom, the camaraderie, the community, to be a part of a covenant people and really and 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 really do God's work uh, because you can't do it except in community. So um, there's uh, the, you know the whole doctrine of succession. So sanctions, uh, Jesus says in Matthew twenty three thirty seven through thirty nine, where we're going to end up today. He he pronounces after we're going to see his bringing God's covenant lawsuit from chapter 16 all the way to the end of chapter 23. And then at the end of chapter 23, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. That's what he calls Jerusalem, uh, as Revelation calls Jerusalem, when he calls it Jerusalem the great whore of Babylon, uh, the, the one who kills the, in, whose, in whose gates are found the blood of all the martyrs. Um, so, um, and then he says, those who kill, you know, uh, the prophets and stones, those sent to her, how often I've wanted to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And then he says, behold, your house, you're going to see that several chapters earlier, he called it my house. He says, now he disowns the temple and he says, your house is left to you desolate. And the word for desolate is a common word throughout the Old Testament that means without the presence of God, the desolation of, of no presence, of no active move of God. You have church, you have a form of godliness, but you have no power. Uh, you have no active presence of God doing the things God does, heal, deliver, reconcile, rejoice, in all the things that God does. So uh, that's where we're going today. So uh, um, last week we tried to do a little bit of an expedited ex excursion through Matthew to get prepared for this. I didn't probably make it that far. You have the outline, and in a few years, uh, God willing, it will be a book. So uh, hopefully uh, I only have so much time, and I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to end this part of the of the uh, Christology and the study of Jesus so we don't go past letter Z uh, so that we can move on to element six. <laughs> so uh, so we're not going to uh, finish up that trend. Whatever I didn't finish last week is in the outline, and you can study it in the Gospels yourself, uh, especially Matthew, of course. Now, uh, today uh, we're going to look at the, the parables as prophetic prosecution of Yahweh's covenant lawsuits, kind of a a little bit of alliteration and maybe a little tongue twister to put it together. Again, the parables as the prophetic per prosecution of Yahweh's covenant lawsuits. And we're going to focus on Matthew, although Luke 9.51 through uh, Luke 21 uh, does the same thing. Although they don't have all the same parables. They're not a complete overlap, or even close to a complete overlap, actually. Um, but they have, the same, they have the same theme and same purpose and the same message. So two things I want to lay down uh, first, though you, I want to call it Biblical Theology 101, or uh, the foundational principles of how to interpret Scripture by understanding the parables and everything else in Scripture in context. What we do today is we know a lot of proof verses. We know, come to me, all you are heavy and weary and he heavy laden, and that you will find rest. But we don't know the rest of the passage. We don't know where he says, I thank you, God, uh, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent as revealed them to babes. And 
uh, we don't know, take my yoke upon you. You can't find rest that he's talking about without that part, but we leave that part out because that's not good for salesmanship uh, since we become peddlers of the gospel. So uh, no no one wants to quote that in context, but you can't understand anything in the Bible without understanding the paragraph it's in, in, in the chapter it's in, in the book it's in, in the context of the whole Bible. And, and because um, the, there's two things that are kind of missing in today. Like one of, a lot of people say that today's evangelical hermeneutic is we interpret the Bible as written directly to the 20th and 21st century instead of remembering it was actually written in historical context. And you have to understand that to get its message because he's not just prophesying about in, you know, uh, Russian helicopters or any other kind of modernistic nonsense. He's, uh, all the prophets are speaking in an exact historical context. Do yourself a little favor. Read the first three verses of every one of the five major prophets and uh, really four major prophets who wrote five books because Lamentations written by Jeremiah. And the 12 minor prophets, and you'll notice that all but uh, four or five of them or, or so, I, I didn't ever count them, but they all start with not only identifying the prophet's call, but what, who was the kings at the time uh, that he, he or she prophesied. That's because they're not prophesying about the end times. They're prophesying uh, to call Judah and Israel back to covenant faithfulness to their covenant Lord out of being a spiritual adulterer into being spiritually faithful. Uh, they're, they're, and they're using the law to show Israel that they haven't fulfilled their mission. The most important parts of the law that they hadn't fulfilled is what they were supposed to do for aliens and strangers and so forth. Uh, and, and the fact that they were supposed to be representing God to the nations around them, and they always hated the nations around them. They were self-righteous uh, toward the nations around them, and they were hypocritical toward the nations around them, and they constantly wor- worshiped false idols and so forth, making for a bad testimony to the nations around them. You know, if we could see the way God sees, our sins, our sins hurt the church, and his purpose is through it more than we know, much more than we know. Uh, there's always a damaging consequence. You know, there's a concept today that uh, it's okay for people to do drugs or whatever because no one got hurt except the user. <laughs> and that is so, that is just wishful thinking to the max. What, you know, what you do and how you grow in the Lord and so forth affects a lot of things. So... Um, that's really important. That's uh, study Judges, uh, the first few chapters, uh, when, um, when uh, the, or Joshua, the first when, chapter seven with the sin of Achan and, and so forth and what happens to Israel. So remember the books are written in, the, in, an, in a prophetic or an, a, an actual contest. The apostles, for instance, much of the New Testament, uh, the epistles, were written to specific churches or leaders of churches about specific issues. But in order to really understand them, you need to understand the whole apostolic community way of life that the New Testament communities were living, and that's discernible in the pages. 
but they're not trying to address every issue uh, in some systematic way like writing a manual to a technical equipment. They're trying to address specific issues and through that you can kind of re if you especially if you know more about the culture at the time and so forth you can reconstruct uh, the context that it was given in. Uh, the same with the prophets we already talked about the context of which are the kings and what Israel's going through and what are in what stage of uh, God's unfolding plan and um, um, another example would be, uh, for instance, would be the law was given at Mount Sinai because it was God, uh, through Moses, the, the archetype or prototype of Christ, giving the law of God to the people of God after the exodus and just before they started traveling in the wilderness because God was entering into a covenant people and the law is not understandable, uh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, unless you start with Exodus 19, that God wanted a special people for himself, a people for his own possession, and that God would do certain blessings if they indeed obeyed his voice and followed all of his commandments. Then Jesus comes along as the new Moses, as, as we looked at a few weeks ago, as the, as the um, antitype of Moses, the fulfillment of it all, and he's the prophet that Moses prophesied was coming. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us the law afresh. And he, it, it gives us what God always intended through the law. But man's sinful heart had negated because man approached God on a performance base instead of crying out for grace. And Jesus gives us that you're not only supposed to not kill your brother, you're not supposed to be angry at him or even belittle his humanity. If you call him at Raqqa, an airhead, uh, who has not? Who's ever called someone an airhead or, uh, or something? Uh, you're guilty enough to go into the hell of fire, Jesus says, because you have you have sinned against the image of God in that person. Um, you know, if you lust, you've not only sinned against God, you've sinned against the image of God in the person you're lusting after. And so, uh, Jesus, the the new Moses gives us the real law, which was the, what the law always said in the first place. And he said, don't think that I came to, to support modern antinomianism, my modern translation. I, I can't, that is, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And just because you're under grace doesn't mean, you know, people misinterpret because you're not under grace, you're not under law. You're not under the law. The law is in you and, and, and lives through you in Christ. So um, the second point we need to, for background is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, I wish I could, for Anvesh's sake, had enough time, but Anvesh, I don't have enough time to go into apostolic induction. But I put it on the notes just to, just to uh, keep, keep you uh, thinking about it. But uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the Scripture interprets the Scripture. So Jonah... We teach Jonah today in Sunday school. I just want to use one example of, of a prophet. We teach Jonah in Sunday school, and we teach about the fish. A lot of people mistake him to say it's a whale, but it's a fish because no whale has a big enough throat. But many fish in the ocean can swallow a man whole and uh, have him live in there for a few days. Um, there's lots of fish that big, and uh, uh, and they don't need to chew either. Uh, so, um, you know... It, that, but we interpreted it as that, and I don't know what we, 
what other messages we get out of it uh, that you shouldn't run from the call of God in your life or something. But no, what Jonah was specifically running from is Israel's calling to be redemptive to the nations. He was called to go prophesy to Nineveh, the capital of Babylon, the greatest uh, city from man's point of view, like we might say New York City is the greatest city or something today. God help us. But uh, uh, hope no one from New York City is listening. But, uh, you know, he, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want God to bless him. He wants God to judge him. And he knows if they, if they hear the message of God that they might respond to it. And he is actually that prejudiced and that hateful and that rebelling against all Israel's calling. And so Jonah is a type of all Israel. And that's why Jesus says no sign will be given uh, your generation except the sign of Moses or sign of Jonah. As he was in the belly of the fish three days and so forth. So that's just one example of scripture needs to interpret scripture. The message of Jonah is clear against the backdrop of the whole Bible. That was always Israel's problem. So let's flip over to page two on your outline. And uh, this gives us 25 minutes to uh, try to go through as many of 20 uh, things from, from Matthew as possible. So I can't develop them that much. I'll give you an introduction so you can study them more and get out of them. The pair, uh, oh, I forgot to get my Bible ready myself. The parable of, what's the first one? The parable of the signs of the time. So I can't spend much time on that one. Uh, but Jesus tells them, he's, he's telling Israel uh, and the Pharisees and, and Sadducees in particularly, particular that you know how to interpret the signs of the weather and the signs of the and so forth but you don't recognize the day of your visitation and so that you're going to be judged for that and that's in contrast to all kinds of people in the bible like the sons of Issachar. the scripture describes them as men who understood the times with knowledge of what israel should do the Bible describes David as fulfilling the purpose of God in his generation. One thing about religion and traditionalism, which is different than tradition, uh, we don't have time to develop that today, but uh, one thing about tradition, or we probably should have started with Matthew 15 and Jesus developing that, but tra traditionalism uh, basically wants to stay, uh, keep the, keep, not change or it has a view of God not actively doing something today so all we have is empty traditions we don't have uh, that's traditionalism but tradition is using the things of God to teach the ways of God in order that we might know what God is continuing to do in our midst So Jesus, in the parable of the, uh, the first four verses of Matthew 16, is basically judging Israel for not recognizing when God himself was moving in their midst because their religiosity didn't allow for it. Uh, beware of the leaven, which is uh, Matthew 7, or 16, uh, verses 5 through 12. Uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes and uh, you men of little faith and all of that. 
is basically beware of the whole teaching of Phariseeism, which if you really step back and quit doing proof text but analyze things more in as the Bible as a whole, you'll really kind of begin to see that most of what mainline modernistic uh, Protestantism is is the teachings of the Sadducees, and most of evangelicalism is the teachings of the Pharisees. And Jesus says to beware of those. Don't let a little bit of that get in you because a little bit of some of the things like self-righteousness, uh, a little bit of low expectations of what God's going to do in the future, of thinking that God's going to bring a political kingdom instead of uh, have his kingdom uh, work like leaven throughout the whole earth, and, uh, uh, but he, that he's going to restore the nation state of Israel. And any of these kinds of ideas, um, these, these ideas are the ideas of the Pharisees. And a little bit of that will ruin the whole lump of dough. Uh, then he, uh, the parable of the gates of Hades at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus says, who do I say I am? We covered that in uh, part 5K of this same series, Central Elements of the, uh, the Biblical Christian Gospel. And we talked about how Jesus left Israel to go outside of Israel to Caesarea Philippi in order to, uh, to, be, to, to say a parable. Uh, he said a parable with his actions. Israel is never going out to the nations like they're supposed to. They're keeping it in the walls of the church. That's called pietism today. They're, they're, they, uh, they're, not, they're not a missional community. They're not keeping their nose clean so that they can live, live right to spread the gospel. They're blowing their testimony in front of everyone all the time. And there's going to be judgment for this. There's going to be consequences. And uh, he then goes on to, you know, we talked about what the gates of Hades were, that it was actually a place of great pagan worship where they actually had sex with, uh, with um, goats and uh, because of the Greek god Pan or Fawn in, uh, in Latin. Um, and, uh, the, and, it was, and Jesus is basically saying, I... He is saying, I am going to build my church, which means I'm disowning Moses' assembly. Moses, the Greek word for a congregation or assembly in the Septuagint is constantly ecclesia. And he's saying, I'm done with that because they don't go to the sinful places. They no, no, it was taught no scribe or Pharisee would allow anyone in Israel to go to there. That would be like if you just said, uh, gee, uh, I'm taking my friend and we're praying and we're going to go witness in bars. Like some people would be like, oh, oh my God. Well, you know, the, you know, I, you know, I want to give you a testimony. You're sitting here today, many of you, not all of you, not, many of you came to Christ and well, you're sitting here today partially because uh, a guy witnessed in a bar in 1971. And uh, he, he was a guy who'd come out of the drug culture, met Christ and been discipled by my pastor, Ray Nethery, for a year and a half or two years. They felt the call of God to go back to Bowling Green because they were living in Mansfield, where Ray is from. And he was sharing the gospel in the bar, and the owner of the most famous bar in, in Bowling Green named Howard said, Wow, what has happened to you? You're so changed. Uh, the stuff you're saying about Jesus is so interesting. And he he made the, the, the band stop playing in the bar, and he pulled up a table 
And he gave them the mic from the band standing on the table, and he preached the gospel to the whole bar. And that was the start of the Bowling Green Church that, uh, that, you know, we, that Catherine and I were discipled out of and sent out of to, to Dayton in the first place. So, you know, Jesus is announcing a whole, see, where he, all of these have to do with succession, and they have to do with hierarchy. Jesus is saying, I'm the new generate, the new move of God is going to succeed the old. I'm done with Moses' congregation. I'm going to start my congregation. And my congregation is going to fulfill the mission that was given to Abraham. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And if you look at the content of the prophets, you'll see over and over again probably a thousand prophecies of rebuke because Israel was not behaving right in regard to the other nations around them who they were supposed to be. The, they were the only hope. Do you realize when you're walking in Kroger that you are the closest someone has probably may ever come to the kingdom of God when you're in the checkout line? You know, people wonder why I befriend people everywhere. You know, I used to go read my Bible at Panera Bread in the morning uh, on my laptop because they had Wi-Fi. And I had to stop going after about three or four months because I knew so many people that it became a social hour for two hours. But that's what, you know, uh, you are the mediator of God's uh, purposes. And how you conduct yourself in every way uh, uh, represents that. People make their ideas about the reality of Christianity by you and, your, and the way you, you carry yourself. And you have, you have their eternities in your hand. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great piece about that, but we won't go into that. The parable of the transfiguration, uh, which, uh, of course, is an actual event, but again, Jesus is doing something in parable form there. And he, uh, Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus because Jesus is the antitype of both the law and the prophets. And he's basically saying in their appearance, uh, their, their ministry is about to end. I am their ministry. I am the law. I am the prophets. And I'm about to fulfill it all. And everything the prophets prophesied, the suffering servant and everything is about to happen. And it was actually from the first one we talked about, from Matt, uh, or I guess it was the third one, the parable of, the, uh, of Caesarea uh, was the first time Jesus began to tell his disciples about his soon suffering and passion and, and death and resurrection. And then after the transfiguration, they come down, cast the demon out of the man's son, and then he tells them the second time about his upcoming, why, he's, why he has gone to Jerusalem with intent in his heart. Remember, it says he set his heart. And the Greek actually means he set his heart against Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to, to tell Ju Jerusalem the last time that it's over, and I'm not having this anymore. And I've given you one prophet after another prophet and a chance to repent and a chance to become the people of God. And you won't do it. You won't have it. You're stiff neck and uncircumcised in heart. And you always fill up the measure of your sins. And I am going to pour wrath on you through, through the Roman army to the uttermost. Uh, 
Next is, of course, you unbelieving and perverted generation, which is uh, actually before he tells them the second uh, time of his crucifixion when he's casting the demon out of this. But remember, we want to say, we think of, oh, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Boy, that certainly describes America right now, right? Again, pretty much does, doesn't it? But he's actually talking, this is about, because he's about to prophesy to his generation. And that's why he says in Matthew 24, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. All the things he says that people say as the end times, he tells you it's not very clearly by saying this will all happen before this generation passes away, which is 40 years in the Bible. And he dies in 30 AD. And 40 years later, it's all fulfilled. And much of the New Testament is about that. And you miss the message of the New Testament if you miss that he's building a new people and you cannot be a Christian without being a part of a covenant community and a way of life uh, to do the will of God together. Uh, that's why, like, you know, uh, you know, whether the church has uh, the strong senior pastor model or has a plurality of elders, that's why all that what we're doing matters. Because it, it will never be restored when it's built on all the wrong foundations. Everything from the, from the biblical liturgies of scripture readings and the church calendar and to, to, to community, to, to personal discipleship, to a community that disciples one another, to a missional community... Uh, to the right ways of raising up leadership from within instead of hiring them from Bible schools from without uh, and equipping them in, from within the church. All of this is, is important because God is always doing everything he's doing through his people. And he's in this context, he's prophesying to a specific generation. Then Turning to Matthew 18 is the whole uh, uh, incident with who's the greatest. And uh, I used to, uh, uh, the, uh, the Kenyan guys, uh, when they were, uh, well, Sam was about 11 and the other guys were 14 and then when they, and 15. They used to drive me nuts because they were always like fighting about like who's the greatest. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, uh, and uh, Edwin's dad, Simon, used to say, don't worry, they're only 14. They'll grow out of it, <laughs> which they have. Thank God. <laughs> but uh, uh, um, I used to like want to pull my hair out, and I used to have some hair back then. And a uh, uh, long time ago in a galaxy far away. But um, Jesus is basically talking about succession here. He's saying I'm tired of leaders who are self-serving, who are in it like the Sadducees for the money and the politics of it, uh, and, and uh, for political gain and for ego, and, and as the Pharisees were, and to, to condemn others and, and so forth instead of empowering others. I want a new kind of leadership that's going to empower others. So, um, so the... Uh, it, it's all about succession again. Then he talks about leaving the 99 and going and searching for the one that is straying. And if you go, go back and read the prophets, often 
the prophets are rebuking the other prophets, the false prophets and the false kings and the false leaders of Israel for that very same issue. He's often saying, woe to the shepherds of Israel. Because they weren't going out to find the one that was strained. Now, this, that particular passage in Matthew uh, 19, 13 through 15 is actually a, a small slice of the entire Luke chapter 15. And if you want a better take on Luke chapter 15, there's a great book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God that opens up Luke 15. And I first heard that message back in the 80s when Tim Keller was probably a little kid as I was. Uh, or well, we weren't little kids, but young men. Um, by a guy named Bob Mumford, because it's not something that's that unique to Tim Keller, although very few people have the right interpretation of Luke 15, unfortunately. But, uh, but there's always been some who do. And, uh, and it's not about the prodigal son. It's about the elder brother. Because this, at the start of the chapter, the Pharisees and scribes uh, are mad at Jesus because he's hanging around prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. Oh, my God, the tax collectors were worse scum than prostitutes by far. You know, they were the worst. Still are, but uh, <laughs> but we believe people from the IRS could come to Christ. Uh, <laughs> it's theoretically possible, and uh, don't limit the power of God. So, uh, um, so uh, Jesus is, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is basically uh, uh, telling them to. Uh, I, I lost my train of thought. Uh, to. to um, not hinder those who are coming to me. Oh, wait, wait, we're still up on search for the strange one. So, oh, yeah, Luke 15. So, basically, uh, because the Pharisees and Sadducees have the attitudes they do, which is in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, the rest of the chapter, he's responding to their attitudes. And in the elder brother, he was the guy who stayed in church all his life, and he had served the church for years, mowing the church lawn and you know, whatever, uh, being at the church, running the church bingo or no, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> the, cleaning up the pizza boxes on, on Friday nights or something. And he, he had done all this stuff and for his father, but he really didn't love his father. He wanted to kind of have something over on his father. It was all performance-based so he could kind of say, I, you know, I did it, and I did it my way and that kind of thing. And so he, 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 totally the attitudes of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he, um, so when the, when, the, the, when the father receives the prodigal son back and kills the fatted calf and puts the robe of righteousness on him and the ring of covenant on his finger and the sandals of, of clean, cleansing his path uh, and so forth and has this great festival, the elder brother's upset. You know, you mean this guy who's wasted your wealth on harlots and so forth, you've made him equal to me in sonship? Yes. That's what the church is supposed to be all about all the time. Some guy that is still struggling and uh, can't, can't stay righteous for two weeks at a time and uh, can't stay on the path and, and needs to be at every meeting so and re read more and and so forth, and he's struggling to build some kind of godly character and so forth. He is your brother, the same, and God loves him the same as he loves you. 
who are the top 10 tithers and the top 10 servers and the top 10 studiers and the top 10 everything else. And, uh, you know, and God puts great favor on uh, those uh, who are hurting and those who are, and he, and he puts the robe of righteousness on them, even though they just, uh, you know, assaulted a police officer last night in, in a bar at three in the morning. <laughs> but uh, today they're repentant. <laughs> you know, uh, whatever, you know, just being absurd. But um, so uh, then, then he goes on to talk about let, don't, let the children alone and don't hinder them from coming to me. Because what religion always does is it hinders people from coming to God. And that was always Israel's sin. And that is actually the first woe when we're going to get, we're going to end it today by getting to Matthew 23 and uh, hopefully the eight woes, where hopefully we'll get that far. And the first of the eight woes against the Pharisees and Sadducees and the nation of Israel is woe is, are you because you don't enter in the kingdom of God. In other words, you don't obey me and follow me. And therefore you hinder anyone who would try to enter. And that's what religion always hinders those who are struggling to enter. So righteousness can rebukes them, teaches them, instructs them with all patience and instruction, with gentleness, uh, reminding ourselves that we were such ourselves, and there but by the grace of God go us, and so forth, as Galatians 6, 1 through 3 teaches us. Then the parable of the rich young ruler. I'm going to probably have to start skipping a few. The rich young ruler, if you want a good study of that, there's a, one of our foundational books is called Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, and he uses the, the, the account of the rich young ruler to share some of the missing. Uh, he covers, oh, two or three of the missing, seven or eight missing elements of the American gospel in, in there pretty well. And uh, in essence, though, the uh, like we would have, brought the rich young ruler in and we would have made him a deacon uh, because he was would have had a big tithe and so forth and we would have chased after him but Jesus lets him go and Jesus is running around with his band of scraggly followers like David did David and his uh, men were everyone who didn't belong and was disenfranchised and it was kind of a ragtag look kind of looked like our church on a Sunday morning <laughs> and uh, and uh, sweatshirt sweat socks you know hangovers <laughs> two or three people spend some time with the Lord other people beat up their brothers <laughs> what uh, you know and uh, I'm just kidding but um and uh, the Sadducees were all like the rich young ruler. They were all about political power. And so were the Pharisees, but especially the Sadducees. But what they didn't want was the, what the rich young ruler left over was he said, give up your power and your wealth and choose the greater, wealthier, more rich thing. Follow me. Have the real riches. And the Sadducees could not do that. They were jealous of Jesus. They knew who he was. By the way, if you think, you really don't know much about the Bible, if you think the Pharisees and Sadducees did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew very clearly. And they resented his encroachment on their power base, the same as Herod did, wanted to kill him 
because he didn't want another king in Israel. It was all about, they never had anything in their heart toward God. They were, had a lot in their heart toward religion. And most people who go uh, to performance-based churches, which there's many versions of Catholicism, many versions of Baptist and fundamentalism and, and, and evangelicalism, many versions of Christianity today that are so performance-based, it has nothing to do with God at all. It holds to a form of godliness, but it denies the power you, you've got to have a testimony that God powerfully changed my whole life. Everything changed. My motivations for why I'm living changed. My attitudes. I had an encounter where I never could have a doubt again. Because you, you, it's not, you, you know, apologetics is one thing. I think it can strengthen your faith. But the truth is, God reveals himself and, and that's what happens in salvation or in, in conversion. You come to know that you know that you know because the one who knows has spoken to you and he can do it in such a way that he convinces you. That's why it says the Holy Spirit will come to convince of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those who are in Christ are not struggling for their faith. They know that they know that they know. And, it, and God will give you that in, a kind of experience with him if you seek him and ask for it. Uh, the parable of the labors of the vineyard. Oh, boy, I'm getting out of time. Uh, the parable of the two sons. Uh, but after they say, by white, what authority? I wish I could do more of these. Uh, maybe I'll do another week on this. It's so good stuff. Isn't it good? Um, this, this is what, these are not things. We teach these parables in Sunday school as if they're about you're, you know, little little Joey behave, treating his sister right. They're, they're spoken to us in a specific historical contents to a specific generation and to a specific nation of Israel. That God's done with them. And he's building a new people and he's taking his remnant as he did in the days of Elijah, 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, as he did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, around 3% of the Jews went back after the captivity, there, he's taken his remnant on to the next move of the people of God. That's what he's always doing. So the parable of the two sons, which one did the will of his father? The Pharisees say the first, and he says to you, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Guess what? They were mad when they heard that. They wanted to kill him, and they eventually did. And, you know, he, he, this is what's called an enthymine, and if you study logic, Jesus asked them a question that they are compelled to answer correctly, even though it's against themselves. He says, which one did the will of their father? They know. The, one, the first one who said, I won't do it, like all the sinners have done all their life, and then came back to God and said, I will do your will, or the, one, the religious person who said, I will do it, but has no intention of really getting down to the nitty-gritty of doing God's will. They're willing to come to church and get a little churching up and stuff. They're not about to become his disciple. Uh, the parable of the two sons, we, uh, the parable of the landlord and the tenants. Uh, maybe I'll just get into this next week because this is such good stuff. 
Uh, maybe someone can remind me that, because uh, I skipped the triumphal entry, right? Oh, gosh, in the temple and the barren fig tree. Why don't we just do one more week on this? This is good stuff. Um, do you guys like this? you want to do another week on it? Okay. The eyes have it. <laughs> uh, so uh, now, read, read, read uh, between now and next week, read Matthew 15 to 25 if you want to get more out of the message. Uh, look for parallels in the whole Bible. Read Luke 9:51 through Luke 21, and look for parables in the whole Bible. I'm not really, I haven't really done this as thoroughly with Luke. Uh, there's recently a book out that I'm going to be reading. Uh, I've read uh, actually the introduction in the first chapter of, and uh, seems like it's my lot in life. I I get there through the first chapter, but um, uh, read these things and 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 see if those things aren't so. You know, see if. Uh, if, if we don't have it right. Amen.